The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, June 16th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. How Juneteenth has evolved over the years from its origins in Texas and its reception today. How the Xerox machine and several dozen Dalmatian puppies saved Disney Animation Studios from closing up shop. And a portal for exploring the cosmos on Google Chrome. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. This Friday, the 19th, is Juneteenth here in the U.S., and as of yesterday, it's one step closer to actually being made an official federal holiday. The U.S. Senate voted unanimously to establish the holiday, and it's likely to pass the House of Representatives once the bill makes it over there. The holiday, also known as Freedom Day, and which commemorates the day in 1865, two and a half years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, when formerly enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, were finally told they were free. It's been an official state holiday in Texas since 1980, and up until last year, they were the only state in the nation to recognize it as a paid holiday for state employees. Although Texas also made Confederate Heroes Day a holiday in 1973 and still observes that as a partial holiday, so I don't know how many brownie points they win here. But more and more states, like New York and Washington, have joined in making Juneteenth a legal holiday, and more are likely to join in this year. And even where it's not a paid state holiday, most states do have an official observance at the very least. And since it's still kind of an unfamiliar holiday for non-black folks outside of Texas, I know a lot of my friends' offices are taking the day off for the very first time this year, so I thought it would be worth digging a bit more into its origins, reception, and how it's evolved over the years. Quoting Pulitzer Prize winner Annette Gordon-Reed in her new book of essays on Juneteenth, as excerpted in The Root, June 19, 1865, shortened to Juneteenth, was the day that enslaved African Americans in Texas were told that slavery had ended, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed, and just over two months after Confederate General Robert E. Lee had surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox. Despite the formal surrender, the Confederate Army had continued to fight on in Texas until mid-May. It was only after they finally surrendered that Major General Gordon Granger, while at his headquarters in Galveston, prepared General Order No. 3, announcing the end of legalized slavery in the state. End quote. And from the official Juneteenth website, quote, Later attempts to explain this two-and-a-half-year delay in the receipt of this important news have yielded several versions that have been handed down through the years. Often told is the story of a messenger who was murdered on his way to Texas with the news of freedom. Another is that the news was deliberately withheld by the enslavers to maintain the labor force on the plantations. And still another is that federal troops actually waited for the slave owners to reap the benefits of one last cotton harvest before going to Texas to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. 
all of which or none of these versions could be true. Certainly for some, President Lincoln's authority over the rebellious states was in question. Whatever the reasons, conditions in Texas remained status quo well beyond what was statutory. The reactions to this profound news ranged from pure shock to immediate jubilation. The celebration of June 19th was coined Juneteenth and grew with more participation from descendants. The Juneteenth celebration was a time for reassuring each other, for praying, and for gathering remaining family members. Juneteenth continued to be highly revered in Texas decades later, with many formerly enslaved people and descendants making an annual pilgrimage back to Galveston on this date. End quote. Juneteenth celebrations continued throughout Texas in the 1800s, often consisting of neighborhood celebrations, barbecuing, and speeches from elders. The celebrations were occasionally met with resistance, with certain public spaces prohibiting their use for Juneteenth festivities, or white employers refusing to allow their employees to take the day off. The many changes of the turn of the century, capped off by the Great Depression, put an end to many Juneteenth celebrations for several decades. But in the 50s and 60s, the civil rights movement revived interest in the holiday and ignited observance throughout the South. And from there, it continued to spread throughout the U.S., especially in recent years. These days, Juneteenth celebrations typically include, quoting Gina Chirillis last year in the New York Times, Eating barbecue, shooting fireworks, gathering at a cookout, and sipping on red drinks, a tradition that symbolizes perseverance and honors the blood that was shed of African Americans. Or it's shopping only at black-owned businesses, sharing history, or resting at home. End quote. As a fellow Texan, I like this quote from Gordon Reed's book, which also includes an important historical clarification, quote, As I think of it, it's really a very Texas move to say that something that happened in our state was of enough consequence to the entire nation that it should be celebrated nationwide. It has been offered as part of the justification that the end of slavery in Texas was the end of the institution period. That's not quite true. Granger's order did not end slavery in the country. That did not happen officially until December 1865 when the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified by the necessary number of states. But it is significant that Texas was the site of the tail end of the Confederate war effort. As the war had been fought to preserve slavery, celebrating Juneteenth throughout the land is a fitting way to mark the end of that effort. End quote. And Michelle Commander, an associate director and curator at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem, also makes a very important point about the spirit of the holiday in today's New York Times. Quote, Juneteenth is a moment where we celebrate, but it's also a moment where we lament, because we see a lot of ways where the racism that undergirded slavery reverberates in our contemporary society, end quote. And to be sure, many are noting the irony of certain states holding Juneteenth observances even as their legislatures debate banning critical race theory. Quoting the LA Times, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is expected to sign House Bill 3979, a piece of legislation in the Lone Star State that mirrors other efforts across the country to limit, if not flat-out ban, discussions of systemic racism in the classroom, which of course is the epitome of systemic racism. While the current debate is about K-12 schooling, the approach grew out of legal philosophy as a way of analyzing how legislation and policies sustain racial inequality. Contrary to its opponents' rhetoric, critical race theory is not a retelling of American history. It's a much-needed excavation designed to unearth the impact of events like Juneteenth. The intent is to connect the dots between yesteryear's policies and their effects on the racial socioeconomic gap that has haunted the country for centuries. End quote. 
As Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pointed out yesterday during the unanimous passage of the bill, quote, Making Juneteenth a federal holiday is a major step forward to recognize the wrongs of the past, but we must continue to work to ensure equal justice and fulfill the promise of the Emancipation Proclamation and our Constitution, end quote. As Juneteenth spreads in recognition, it's an important reminder of the work there is left to be done by all of us. But for black Americans, as Liara Tamani, a Houston-based writer and author, pointed out to the Times, quote, Just as hard as we're working to fight for our equality, we at the same time need to be celebrating ourselves and showing people all there is to celebrate, end quote. The new 101 Dalmatians villain origin story, Cruella, seemed to be a real love or hate flick, or more like a lukewarm dislike or confused enthusiasm based on reviews with titles like Weird, But I Think I Like It? Whatever the reaction, the film seems to have been pretty far from what people were expecting, mostly because it has almost nothing to do with the 101 puppies that made Cruella DeVille famous. But 60 years before this shiny, chaotic, punk-tinged origin story, the world got its first film adaptation of Dodie Smith's 1956 children's novel, The 101 Dalmatians. And despite being positively obsessed with the movie as a toddler, I never knew that the canine cartoon marked a crucial turning point in the history of animation, and one which Disney may not have ever made it to the other side of had the movie not worked out. 101 Dalmatians marked Walt Disney Animation Studios' 22nd full-length feature animation, having been preceded by classics like Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Peter Pan. It began development in the late 50s, following the box office bomb of Sleeping Beauty, which took $6 million to make but only earned back $5 million. Sleeping Beauty used the dominant animation technique of the time that required artists to hand-trace drawings on transparent celluloid, or cell, sheets. According to Smithsonian Magazine, who reported on this moment in animation history, Disney movies usually have one to two dozen cells per second, so in total, Sleeping Beauty had almost one million cells. That's one million drawings done and traced by hand. A ton of work for a movie that ended up costing the studio a million dollars. And here's more on how animation worked back then, quoting the Smithsonian. Artists first drew concept art to create a character. They sketched characters on animation paper, or cheap newsprint, and then assistants cleaned up the sketches, making sure they were uniform. Consistency was key for characters, as assistants had to follow every detail of a sketch, down to the buttons on a jacket. Once the drawings were ready, they moved to the inkers, who traced the sketches on the front side of shiny cell sheets. After drying, the cell was then turned over for painters to paint the characters within those lines, to get them as opaque as possible. The line work grew even more complicated. Different colors, weights, and thicknesses were vital for giving animated characters the realistic qualities viewers expected. The colors of the paint also demanded extreme attention. Disney mixed its own paint, making their animations unlike any other. In fact, women in the ink and paint departments took rouge from their compacts and applied it to Snow White's cheeks to give her a natural look in the 1937 film. End quote. Unsurprisingly, the artists at Disney Animation Studios were scrupulous and innovative. But after the financial failure of Sleeping Beauty, there was serious discussion about closing up shop. 
By this time, Disney was making live-action films and had opened the theme parks, so he didn't have to keep doing animation, but Walt was an animator at heart and didn't want to give up even if the current process was almost prohibitively expensive. Fortunately, one of his oldest friends and business partners of iWorks had an idea. iWorks had already invented a ton of new methods for their films, from the multiplane camera that gave depth to animated wide shots, to the sodium screen process that combined animation with live action, as seen most memorably in Mary Poppins iWorks even animated Mickey Mouse in the earlier shorts like Steamboat Willie. And in the late 50s, iWorks had been experimenting with using a Xerox machine in cell animation as a possible method for saving a lot of time and money. The Xerox back then was similar in concept as it is today, just a run-of-the-mill copier, but back then it took up three rooms. It was so big iWorks and his team had sneakily tested the method on a scene in Sleeping Beauty, and then did a standalone proof of concept on a short called Goliath 2. Despite Walt Disney's resistance to give up the soft, romantic tones of the animation as they'd honed it in previous features over the years, the team was then given the go-ahead to use the Xerox technique for animating 101 Dalmatians. And the reason the style had to change in a way that Walt Disney didn't love at first is because the Xerox machine could only copy outlines in one color. Whereas before, animators and assistants would outline characters in multiple colors, like Aurora's hair was outlined in soft yellow, her face in beige, her dress in light blue, and even her lips in red, so many different colors of ink being used, and again, each and every cell up to 24 per second hand-traced by assistants. So the Xerox process saved a huge amount of time on that tracing and pleased animators who felt their original drawings were being retained more accurately, but the sacrifice was darker, bolder outlines and a bit of a harsher, sketchier look. It fit for the time in the movie, though, a shift to the cubism and other modern art trends of the mid-20th century for Disney's first feature-length animation set entirely in a contemporary time with a non-fantasy plot. It also worked well for 101 Dalmatians in particular because, well, there were 101 Dalmatians to animate over and over again. With Xerox, you could just animate a handful of them and copy them throughout the background. And despite Walt not loving it to begin with, he softened after a few films, and the Xerox technique was used in all of their animated features for the next three decades, from The Sword in the Stone to The Little Mermaid. It was replaced in the early 90s with the Computer Animation Production System, or CAPS, which was first used on Beauty and the Beast in 1991 and used consistently until it was phased out in favor of CGI in the early 2000s. But just think, if Ub Iwerks and his team hadn't thought to see if a Xerox machine would work on their cells as well as it did on ordinary paper, they may have closed up shop in 1960 and we would have missed out on 60 years of Disney animated movies and one very strange Emma Stone live-action origin story. Live in a place with a lot of light pollution? Want to impress your friends with your knowledge of the stars? Just bored and like enjoying the wonder of the universe? If you've got Google Chrome, you should check out a website called 100,000 Stars. It's an interactive visualization of 119,617 nearby stars set to music by Sam Hulick, who worked on Mass Effect. 
Depending on how tired your computer is, it might be a little choppy to run, but it looks amazing, with a combination of official images and artist renderings of the stars and the galaxy. You can click on any of the 100,000 plus stars to learn more about them as you zoom in and out and navigate around the Milky Way with your mouse. 100,000 stars was created by some programmers at Google, but they do warn that they are just space enthusiasts and say, quote, scientific accuracy is not guaranteed. Please do not use this visualization for interstellar navigation, end quote. But so long as you're just looking to explore theoretically from your computer, it's a pretty cool way to spend some time. That is it for today, but as always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.